I'd like to read the scripture beforehand. It'd be in Luke chapter 1. We had an introduction last week. If you're not with us, uh, we talked about how this gospel came into origin or parts of it, and we'll continue to explain that as we go on. We'll be picking up in verse 5 and go through verse 13 today. As I reference verses, it'll primarily be in chapter 1 of Luke, so be aware of that. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias. He was of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God, in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, John, the Baptist baptizer. Well, as we look at this today, in, these, in, this, in this, this gospel in its infancy, really, the, the first things of the gospel, of the history of how it came to be, we're going to see that Luke is the only gospel which documents this origin of John the baptizer. He's the only one. John was a miraculous birth to an elderly couple And we'll see today that this makes Luke a very important, uh, a crucial link to the Old Testament. The origin of John, uh, it also demonstrates just the the diligence of Luke in his research. Himself now, he is a second generation believer. In verse 2, he admits he wasn't an eyewitness, but his gospel is a result of interviewing eyewitnesses. We don't know if Zacharias and Elizabeth could have still been alive while Luke wrote this gospel. Probably not. Probably not. Most assuredly, Mary was a source. Can't know that for certain, but the material makes it, makes it almost undeniable for at least these first two chapters of the gospel. She would have been a very young girl at the time of these events, probably 15, Elizabeth, she was already far beyond childbearing years. She could no longer have a child. The scripture is clear about that. When John was conceived, it was miraculous. Luke then being written in about 60 AD, right in that ballpark, would make Mary, the young one, about 75 at this time. All right? So where's Elizabeth? Probably not around. Probably not around. It's very important to note Luke never identifies his sources by name other than they were eyewitnesses. But we can safely conclude in chapter 1, none of the apostles were present at this time. Verse 56 describes Mary herself having visited her relative Elizabeth when Elizabeth was six months pregnant. 
Mary then stayed with her and Zacharias in their home for another three months. Now you do the math. Why did she stay another three months? We can only assume, I propose that Mary stayed there for those three months to at least help assist in the birth that her her aged relative Elizabeth was going to give. At nine months, she would have been ready to give uh, birth to John the Baptist. If so, then she would have been there when Zacharias' mouth was unstopped, when he spoke once again. And of course, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves in the storyline, but I want you to realize that Luke includes these details that the other Gospels did, Gospel writers did not. He doesn't name his sources. The accuracy uh, of the events doesn't rest in, in the reputation of any one individual. doesn't rest on who gave the testimony. It rests on the careful investigation of the facts of the truth of God as it was guided by the Holy Ghost. And we'll talk about that as we get further into this Gospel. It's probably through this testimony of Mary that these initial events were recorded. Can't, uh, can't really assume who else would have been there. Especially in, in the private times. Nobody else alive would have had a first-hand account of these events that we're looking at in chapters 1 and 2. Luke says his sources consisted of eyewitnesses and he carefully investigated everything for a man named Theophilus. We know in verse 4, it was the exact truth of what Theophilus had already been taught. Theophilus, he would have appreciated probably the detail of Luke as an investigator. We know from another uh, scripture that he was a a, uh, physician of sorts. Luke was a detailed guy. We don't know exactly who Theophilus is, But he probably was a man of considerable stature. The Greek term here, kratistos, it's translated most excellent Theophilus. That description is only given of two other men in Scripture, both in Acts, both written by, again, Luke. And and that description is of of, uh, Festus and... um, Help me, Gerald. Felix. Felix infested and Festus in Acts, and, and that most excellent title was given while Paul was being tried in front of them. So, so these people, uh, these men who had this title, were used to, to weighing evidence to find the truth of something. They were used to testimony. They were used to the facts being given to them as a governor, as a leader, as an official. So we would expect that Theophilus, being in the position of a governor or a similar official capacity, probably wanted to collect some more details about what he had been taught. Some more stuff about Jesus. I want to know everything. I want the full story. I want to know the exact truth of everything from the beginning. Is that typically what we want? Don't we want to know? We do want to know. And, and, and the subtle fact here that Theophilus doesn't seem to request or, or demand or, or desire any specific names. Nowhere here do we see a list of names of the, of the uh, witnesses 
Again, the testimony doesn't rest on the credibility of the witnesses or the reputation of any given witness throughout this gospel. Theophilus doesn't ask for names. He trusts Luke. Luke, just go out and get the evidence. I want to know more about this Jesus. I want to know how he came to about. about. Uh, it, it leads me to believe, you're free to disagree with this, but I suspect Theophilus was probably a believer. We can't know that for sure, but most of us probably heard about Christ, put some faith in Christ, believed on him, and then at some point we wanted to know more. This is what Theophilus wants. Whatever his spiritual state, he wants to know more. So the goal of Luke's gospel is to give more detail from the beginning. Theophilus had been taught, taught not everything. So Luke begins from the beginning in verse 5. He writes, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias. Now your translation might say Zechariah or even Zacharian. Don't worry about that. It is the same guy, just a different transliteration. He was of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughter, daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. So, as a competent investigator, someone who could be trusted, Luke places all of this in a, in a historical context. From its origin, he, he gives Theophilus a context that he, he would recognize. He says, you know, in the days of Herod, this would refer, we know, to Herod the Great. Roman records verify that this King Herod, he was officially honored by being bestowed with the title King of the Jews. How did he get that in 40 BC? Well, it was bestowed upon him by the Roman Senate. He was nominated for it by uh, uh, two men here, Antony and Octavian. Nominated, and the Roman Senate says, You are king of the Jews. Theophilus would have recognized Herod by name, knowing this was the same cruel Herod, the, the same paranoid Herod who had his wife killed, executed, and a couple of his sons along with it, and, and a whole host of others because he was scared of someone taking his throne. He killed off his enemies, or perceived enemies, if he had any suspicion. So, so when Matthew records in his gospel for us, in chapter 2 saying, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, that Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We've come to worship him, the Magi said. We know why Matthew includes when Herod heard this. Oh, he was troubled. He was troubled. Of course he was troubled. This was a conflict for the throne. Herod was king of the Jews. They didn't make a whole lot of room for another king of the Jews. The result was that he, he, he ordered all male children in the region, two years old or younger, to be slaughtered. Vicious man. Historically vicious. People knew it. In a way, he was famous for how wicked he was. It would have been like someone asking us today, you know, remember back in the days of Stalin? We're like, yeah, I remember that. Talk about a vicious, cruel man. 
We know, well, you know, early 1900s, 1920s, 1930s, if I'm right. So, so there's a historical reference where Theophilus would say, I know who you're talking about. I know that guy. In the days of Herod, I've got it. What else? And then Luke continues with this, the beginning of the story of how the Christ entered into the world. And such good news as this begins with something obscure, normal, every day. Just a couple righteous people living in the land of Judea. They're a husband and wife. They've been consistently living their lives in in humble submission to God. There's nothing particularly special about them. In fact, neither of their names, Elizabeth or Zacharias, appears anywhere else in the Bible. Only here, in regards to the birth. Nowhere else. Both were uh, descendants of the priestly line of Aaron. So they were from the family of priests, of which there were many. Many priests. Verse 7 reveals they were quite old, probably elderly. Not only were they old, had no children. No children. Elizabeth was barren, had never had any children. All while both were described in verse 6 as righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Now, we should just look at this for a moment and, and, and their situation. Zacharias and Elizabeth, you know, they're walking blamelessly. That, mean, that means they're devout. It means that they're, they're adhering to, to the book of the laws given through Moses. They trusted in God. It was a righteous couple. Yet they were forced to carry the stigma of having never had a child. She was barren. Every good Israelite knew, quote-unquote good Israelite, they all knew that Solomon wrote in Psalm 128, Behold, children are a gift from the Lord. We know that, right? Zechariah and Elizabeth, they didn't have any gift. No gift. Even, even though they've been praying for a child as suggested in verse 13 through many years, now they're very old. No gift. So what had they done wrong? Wasn't God listening to their prayers? Didn't God want to give them a gift? No child? Think of the questions in that couple's minds. Combine this with the the humiliation that was routinely suffered by Elizabeth. We know from from the book of Moses that it indicates in Leviticus 20, verses 20 and 21, that childlessness potentially can be a penalty, it says, imposed by God as a result of familial incest. That can be a reason you don't have children. So the law affirmed under the Old Covenant that, that potentially a barren couple was bearing the judgment of God. Because there was maybe incest involved somewhere in their history, one side or another. You know, that's a pretty horrible charge. And, and then how do you prove otherwise? Any discerning Israelite 
would also know that there were numerous examples of barrenness in the Old Testament that weren't a result of sin. They would have thought for a moment, they would have thought of Rachel and Hannah, women of the Lord who, who didn't have children for a long time. They were, they were barren. Yet, in verse 25 of this chapter, chapter 1 of Luke, it says that although, although Elizabeth was a righteous woman, she continually bore the mark of disgrace among her people. In, in fact, in verse 36, when, when the angel uh, Gabriel then is, is talking to Mary, informing Mary that her relative Elizabeth is now six months pre- president, uh, pregnant, where did that come from? When Gabriel informs Mary that her relative Elizabeth is now six months pregnant, Gabriel says she is the one who is called barren. Neighbors, apparently, at least some neighbors, referred to her, that's the one. She's barren. You know, why is that? Why is that? You know, God, God saw them as righteous. So, so obviously, their outward actions, Elizabeth and Zechariah, as far as neighbors go, they were great neighbors. Outwardly, they behaved appropriately and were polite. They weren't, weren't huge sinners in the community. They were righteous before God. They loved the law. They served God. Yet, that same community defaulted to believing the worst about Elizabeth. There must be something wrong with her somewhere. You know, why do we, why do we as Christians, why, why do we always tend to gravitate, default to, conclude the worst about someone? Why when something goes bad or, or something's wrong or someone suffers in one way, why, why do we default to always thinking, there's eh, something wrong with her, something wrong with him? Rather than thinking, you know, it's just God's will, You know, sometimes I think that the, the reason that we so quickly judge the circumstances of another, so quickly come to conclusions about why this or that happened, just as they had concluded that she was barren for a reason, some reason, anyhow, God wasn't favoring her. Sometimes I think that, that, that we immediately default to that because we know just how corrupt our own minds are. And we know how if it were not for the grace of God, just how we would turn? Possibly gravitate towards similar, maybe even worse behaviors that we assign to others? And I just think for all of us, myself included, I think it would benefit us, looking at this and this example through Elizabeth, to more often just think the best of those around us. After all, you know, we are, as believers, we're indwelt and regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. It empowers us to at least occasionally have good motives, pure motives. So we don't always have to think the worst situation. We can think the best. We can choose to think the best of one another. You know, Elizabeth was waiting for God. Though she was called barren, though she was very old, she was sitting there waiting for God to somehow vindicate her. It had been a long time coming. They were old. Uh, but now, she's actually just too old to even overcome the stigma. 
Not going to happen. She's too old to have children. In fact, later in the chapter, Mary asks, how can all of this be? Meaning her virgin birth and, and Elizabeth's birth. The angel says, nothing's impossible with God. So we, so we know with Elizabeth, this is a miraculous conception as well, though through uh, a more natural means than, than obviously with the Christ. God just permitted them in their old age to conceive in a natural way through a miracle. However that works. You know, nonetheless, uh, nonetheless of this stigma and, and this, this baggage that she carried, it says she remained faithful, she remained righteous, she did not sin. She didn't sin to the point, anyhow, I mean, we all sin, but you know what I'm talking about. She wasn't, she wasn't an unrighteous person in the community. She was a good person. Zacharias, compare him, meanwhile, with all of this, he probably chuckled to himself as his, uh, towards his own status. He's an aging priest now. He's got a barren wife, no son to leave his portion to, no one to give it to. He's got to be kind of wondering what's going on because you know what his name means? God remembers. And he's thinking to himself, yeah, God remembers. And I've been doing the same thing in and out, over and over, year after year. My wife and I have been praying. We know we're living a life that is, that is good for our neighbors, righteous towards God. Now we can't even, can't even think of conceiving anything. We're, we're far beyond that age. How does God remember you know, you know, if Zechariah were you or me, he probably would have grown a little cynical towards God. Don't you think? Unanswered prayers, seemingly lost opportunities to raise a child. He didn't do that. Scripture says he too remained blameless before God. So you got this couple facing all kinds of stigma and unanswered prayers and trouble. They remained loyal. Boy, what a model couple they are. They really are. How many unanswered prayers have soured you? Or me? You know, how how many have missed the chance to raise a family? Or to to marry? Or, Or perhaps to enjoy a career with your skills? Or career choices ended poorly? Unfulfilled dreams? You know, things that were possibly just reasonable requests of God. And they never came to be. They never materialized. Have we grown cynical because of them? You know, verse 18 and then 37, if you look later, affirms Zacharias and Elizabeth both recognized at their age they had zero chance of realizing a child. That didn't prevent them from remaining faithful in service. They persevered. That's what Christians do. They persevere. I, I, there's a couple that we're real close to out in, in Texas at our church there. And uh, they had served the Lord for years. He, he was an electrical engineer. Brilliant man. Could think in ways most of us can't. And yet he, he forsook that and went into a, a printing ministry with his church that really paid very minimal, little to nothing. And, and, and they made 
leaflets to Bibles because you can't ship Bibles to China. So they'd make portions of Bibles and, and ship them over there. And they had a team over there that when they'd get them, they'd reassemble the Bibles. And they're faithful year after year had, had a number of children had trying circumstances in their life. They got to the age where they're really kind of getting old, had no ability, hadn't had the chance to really save for any retirement. And like, we don't know what we're going to do. Of course, we're hearing everything after the point. And I'm like, uh, what were you going to do? We said, we didn't know. So they had some friends. This is just a great story. They had some friends that, that offered to, to go in with them, I don't know all the details, of buying uh, a trailer park down in southern Mississippi, I believe it was. And, and it was right down by the coast. It was just kind of an old dilapidated trailer park. But they went in on it together, and, and my friends, their role was to live there and manage it. Live in kind of a dilapidated trailer park and manage it. That was their retirement. That was their portion. And he tells stories of joy where, where, where the people would come to the campfire and, and they'd tell them about Christ. And they'd share what they had to share with them and they lived amongst them. <laughs> oh, and then Hurricane Katrina came. Wiped everything out. Then the investors came. Gave them a mint for the property. I don't know how much. All their financial troubles were gone in that portion that they shared. Now, God doesn't promise that he's going to ever remedy our situation or our loss or that unanswered prayer. But it goes to show remaining faithful is the only position to take, no matter how bad our lot is. We simply have to drive on. We have to leave it to God. Even if we die with that dream unfulfilled. That's what Zacharias and Elizabeth we're doing. They're like, we know it's not going to happen, but we're going to be faithful through it all. They kept on serving. Verse 5 says that Zacharias, he was a priest of the division of Abijah. And there were 24 divisions of priests. Each division would serve twice during the year at the temple sacrifices, one week at a time each. And it's significant to note that Luke emphasizes to Theophilus that this gospel of Jesus, it's rooted deep in the Old Testament. Notice how he starts with the priests of the Old Testament. The messianic Christ, he emerges out of a priestly line and a kingly line. Christianity, you know, is not the beginning of an entirely new religion. It's a fulfillment of the promises of God from the Old Testament. Brand new religions are like Islam in the 7th century, coming out of nowhere. Brand new religions are, are like a, a supposed private angelic visitation to a man named Joseph Smith, all by himself. Wrote a book, all by himself. Starts Mormon, Mormonism, you know, 1820s. Brand new thing. No, the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't a brand new thing. It's a fulfillment of the promises given in the garden to Adam and Eve that she will have a seed or a descendant that will be the seed of a woman. Born of a woman, it will crush the serpent's head. Christ is a fulfillment of the promise 
in the Garden of Eden. Christianity is not anything brand new, though it is a new covenant. You know, Christ is actually the fulfillment of everything from the beginning. So when Theophilus wants to know about the beginning, Luke says, I'm going to tell you it comes from the beginning. And it's fulfilled the promises of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and King David, the nation of Israel, all fulfilled through Christ. All the promises. I had a, uh, a dinner one time with a polite man I met on an airplane. He was a nice guy. I talked to him. We had the same ending des- destination, and he invited me out to dinner. He was Hindu. He was raised in one of the upper castes. He was of privilege. He's living here in the States now. And I wanted to talk to him about Christ and share the gospel with him. And, and uh, he wasn't real receptive, but he did say this one thing. You know, you believe in this Jesus. He said, Hinduism's a lot more ancient than yours. I said, no, it isn't. What? No, it isn't. You want me to open up my Bible? Chapter 1, Genesis. In the beginning. It's the only religion from the beginning. It didn't just come about somewhere along the way. And and the promises of the Old Testament that were fulfilled in Christ, those promises belonged to a faithful remnant of Jews. They were watching. They were waiting for the Messiah to deliver them when Zacharias entered that temple to, to burn incense that day and pray. Actually, those who were righteous, they were looking at that command of the last prophet of the Old Testament. That prophecy of Malachi. They're waiting for a messenger of the Lord. This is declared in the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi 3.1, as the Lord declares, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord different person. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then Malachi provides this warning, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. So while looking for this appearance of the Lord, Israel, faithful Israel, was actually watching first for a messenger. One that would appear in the wilderness. Fulfill a prophecy of Isaiah 43, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Right? That's what they were looking for. The one who would come in the spirit of Elijah. They were watching for that prophecy to be fulfilled. Because according to the Old Testament, this was the next order of events that had to happen. 430 years before Malachi had written, and it had been a long time coming, right? 430 years and they hadn't heard a word from Christ or from God. At the same time, there were devout Jews who were still praying for a son. And they were waiting. Then the day came. Look with me at verse 8. We'll look at that day. Now it happened that while 
Zacharias was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So Zacharias is fulfilling the same duties that he had through, throughout his pre- priesthood. He'd been responsible for him for decades. Nothing really out of the ordinary for a priest like Zacharias, except the lot on this day fell on him to enter and burn incense before the Lord. This was an extraordinary honor for priests. There, there were so many of them that most never got to enter and walk in and burn incense. If the lot did fall on you, you never got to do it again. It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Most priests never got to do it. And when entering the temple, everybody else, at least hundreds of priests, thousands of people probably, they would stand outside, and verse 10 says, the whole multitude of people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. Well, of course you would be. If incense symbolizes prayer, the people are going to be outside lifting up prayer. The whole order of Abijah is there, and another order, because there were 24 orders. So there are a bunch of priests, a bunch of people, Burning of incense there, it was a rare occasion for a priest to enter the temple and offer special prayers on behalf of, of the nation of Israel. It's that rare occasion where, you know, if I ever get there, this is what I'm going to pray for. Everyone else remains outside to pray. Zacharias himself had for numerous years prayed. Today was Zacharias' day. It had been a long time coming for this aging priest. Boy, and did this angel get lucky on that day. Hmm. You know, because Zacharias entered the temple and approached him at the altar and began to pray. So at verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right side of the altar of incense. Altar of incense. Boy, is that priest lucky or, or that angel lucky or what? Boy, I'm sure glad it was this day. Whew! Man, I could have come any other day, and who knows if that lot would have fell on Zacharias, right? Uh, Angel probably really had his fingers crossed. Ooh, I just, I just hope this time it's Zacharias. I don't dare go back to heaven without delivering this message. No, of course not. God's in control of, of everything, and this is the day God has appointed. Proverbs 16.33 teaches... The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord, right? We learned when we studied Jonah, we talked about lots for a little bit. And when the lot is cast, God controls its every outcome. You're like, well, that's good. Well, it can be. But isn't that the Lord condones gambling? He doesn't. God can equally cause that lot to cause you ruin as he can to cause you wealth. But, but we learned at that time when we were studying Jonah that, that if we're faced with choices of equal merit, of equal value, if we weighed to the best of our abilities two options that are equal and we can't discern the difference of the value, and we still can't decide, you're free to cast a lot. And you can, you can believe that God will let it fall on the one that is right. 
This is exactly what the apostles did when they replaced Judas. They had two contenders who had equal qualifications. They, they investigated, and, and, and they said, you know, we got these two guys, we're going to draw lots. So you've got a whole bunch of qualified priests out here, equally qualified. They're all priests. They would draw lots among the equally qualified items. Stress that. If you ever want to draw lots about anything, make sure that you haven't already made up your decision. It has to be something that's just completely equal. And you're not required even then to do it, but this is what they did to choose the priest. This demonstrates, you know, that although Zacharias, he didn't have any children, though his wife carried an undeserved stigma, not being a father still did not disqualify Zacharias from priestly service. Didn't disqualify him from from being in the lot and burning incense. It never has in the Bible. Never has. You know, some Christian sects, you will run into this, especially cult groups, you know, they'll, they'll distort 1 Timothy 3 and they'll cause it to mean that qualifications for a church leader, an elder, a pastor, you know, includes keeping his children under control with all dignity. So, so it's proposed that a pastor or an elder, in order to be qualified for a position, they have to have children. How does he keep his children under control with all dignity if he doesn't have children? That's not what that text is teaching. If that were so, Paul, Barnabas, Timothy, Titus, numerous others would not have been qualified. Jesus Christ himself wouldn't have been qualified. And if that were the case, it would have been really ridiculous for Paul to suggest, as he did in 1 Corinthians 7, 32-35, you can read that later, that it's actually preferable if you were to remain single if you have that giftedness. Actually preferable that you not be married and be distracted with the things of the world so that you can be wholly devoted to Christ. It's a particular spiritual gifting. Uh, he, he calls it... Um, lost my place. I was just kind of running along here. Undistracted devotion to the Lord. Undistracted devotion to the Lord. So it isn't the singleness that is the gift. It's the gift of undistracted service, meaning I'm perfectly happy single. There's plenty of people that are single that don't have any service to the Lord. It isn't the singleness itself. It's, it's the not being distracted in service to the Lord. So singleness and childlike, childlessness, they, they don't disqualify people from any position of service in the church. Never has been that way in the Bible. Wasn't in the Old Testament, isn't in the New. What Paul simply means in 1 Timothy 3, that is that if a pastor has a wife, he needs to be devoted to that one wife. If a pastor has children, they have to be uh, under control. That's all that he means. That's all. I run in it from time to time. You do too. I haven't seen it here for a while. Or not, not here in particular at all. But you'll run into some groups. As I minister at the Capitol, you'd run into lots of different groups there. And it seemed like the guy who came in with the biggest van full of kids was always the, the, most, the most devout. He, he must be really spiritual, man. He's got a 20-person van, and that baby's full. He must be spiritual. There's a whole lot of people that have a bunch of kids that aren't and are. 
They're not a measurement, as Paul says, of spirituality. But they are a gift from the Lord. Zacharias has no children. Made for a perfect set of random coincidental circumstances for an angel to supposedly, by complete chance, find Zacharias burning incense inside the temple. You can come across some strange theology out there that takes God off from his throne and everything is by chance. Everything is by what man wills, never about what God wills. You can't reconcile that to the Bible. How, how do you come to that? No matter how you slice this, we're going to see this in the next few weeks, you can't take the sovereignty of God out of human events. God is in control. You can't interpret it any other way. This was a God-ordained event on the day that he so ordained it to be. Could Zacharias have suddenly fallen ill with pneumonia and not been able to make it that day? No. Could he by accident have tripped going up the steps, broken his leg, and have to be run off by the, by the emergency vehicles? No. He couldn't have. God had ordained this day for the announcement of John the Baptist. John the Baptist. 